right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Innovation Crush. Innovation Crush. Ah, I'm I, back. I missed you. Hey, you were, like, you you were like six in the hole. Oh, I'm here. Thank you. Uh, that was Robert Donez Jr. That's me. Hey, man. Hey. Um, and welcome, everybody, to another episode of the show. Um, in case you don't know, this show kind of covers all things marketing and innovation and uh, some of the best ideas in the marketplace and the best people behind those ideas. And uh, we have some very special guests in the house today. Um, sitting across from me is a gentleman by the name of Bob Pierce. Did I pronounce that correctly? You did. Uh, yes, it's spelled differently. It's spelled differently. It's but, P-E-I-R-C-E. Yes. Yeah. We'll go into the whole U.K. All right. U.S. thing in a little while. <laughs> Uh, and to my left is Lauren Stone. Say hello, Lauren. Hi, hello. How are you doing? Good. Um, and you guys are here from an organization called Brit Week. That yes. is correct. Um, so I'll let you start, Bob, and just kind of give me a little bit of background on you, uh, what you do. I, I, you know, I've read some some bits and pieces, but just give me the, the sort of the one hundred and one on Bob Pierce. Okay, well, good to spelling. be with you uh, guys. Thank you very much. So, yes, my name is Bob Pierce, and I was a British diplomat for 32 years until five years ago. Worked in Hong Kong. I was uh, one of the negotiators on the uh, agreement to hand over Hong Kong to the, to the Chinese. Worked in Northern Ireland on the peace agreement there. Uh, and then they sent me to Los Angeles. Oh, uh, no. I did not get <laughs> what involved. What did you do? Did not get involved <laughs> with a peace agreement here. Uh, no, actually, I really wanted to to come to Los Angeles. I first visited in 1974. I promised myself I'd come live here sometime, and so yeah. 2005, I came as British Consul General, which is like being ambassador on so the West Coast. 30 so thirty years later, you thirty-one. Yeah, yeah. I had a few visits, but uh, thirty-one years later, I lived here. And uh, when uh, my term was up, it's a four-year term as, as a diplomat in uh, Los Angeles or indeed pretty much anywhere else, um, I decided to stay here. So I'm a Klingon. Nice. I stayed. Well, what, what I now do draw? a number of uh, private things. <laughs> well, what was the draw for uh, like you to come to L.A.? Like, what, what really made you want to stay? Well, I think that gets right into what we're going to be talking about with Brit Week because um, <laughs> uh, there are a lot of Brits here. Uh-oh. And what draws us... Um, Everybody will mention the weather, of course, but I think there's much more to it than that. Um, uh, There's more to it, and there's also some difficulty in explaining the full attraction. Christopher Isherwood, one of my favorite authors uh, who lived and worked here for a long time, said there's no point in trying to explain to anyone why Los Angeles is the only place to live. Either you get it or you don't. Right. I think I get it to a greater extent than, uh, than he was able to describe. It's just a, it's, it's a place full of ideas. I mean, we're going to be talking about innovation. Yep. Uh, barely a day passes without me coming across someone with a new idea. It could well be crazy, but I think L.A. is a place where even the crazy ideas get ventilated more than they would crazy elsewhere. Crazy ideas are usually the fun ones. Yeah. yeah. Some um, so what, what well. was L.A. like in 1974? Lauren, you can answer that. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no. No. So, like, in 1974, what, what, like, what was it? I mean, was it your first – when you first got here, were you like, oh, man, this is it for me? Or did it take some repeat visits and, you know, things like that for you to sort of – really lean towards the, the decision to stay. No, I liked it first time. I'd driven across the country from Connecticut, wow. where I was doing a vacation job. I was on vacation from university at the time. So I drove across the country in a beaten up Chevy Nova, and I reached the ocean at Venice. And I thought that was pretty cool. It was 1974. I slept on the beach, which probably wasn't a very sensible thing to do. But I lived. <laughs> you could through, do it back then. I, I, I lived through that experience, <laughs> right. and here I am. Uh, <laughs> in Venice Beach, of all. all and then I was actually, uh, I mean, interestingly um, and unusually, my guidebook, if I can put it that way, was a was a book written by a British architectural historian called Rainer Bannum. Uh, about the architecture of Los Angeles. And he actually made a movie in the early 70s for the BBC called Rainer Bannum Loves Los Angeles. And this was at a time when most people were very negative about L.A. L.A., as you all know, goes through these periods where everyone thinks it's hopelessly divided and ungovernable. And My mom still uh, thinks it's right. sinking into the ocean. Sinking <laughs> into the ocean, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, this was uh, – after the 60s were not a good time in Los Angeles, to put it mildly. And here was a man who was writing a book which basically said that L.A. is a source of great ideas about art and design, which it is. 
Um, and that was my guidebook. So I went around looking at buildings. I did not go around looking at stars' homes. Right. Uh, so it was a slightly unusual introduction, but I was just completely captivated by the architecture of the place, which is very interesting. Huh. If you That's care, a really interesting perspective, actually. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when I, when I read your bio, it, it makes me tired. You've got so many like accomplishments and so many things you've done over the years. That's sweet of you to say. Yeah. So, oh, thank you. Well, that's, <laughs> hey, I'm trying to sweeten you up. I, I have a proposition for you later. Um, but um, one thing I, w- I wanted to get into was just kind of like, before we go into your background and the exhausting list of accomplishments, um, tell just give us the, the 101 on, on Brit Week. And Lauren, you can chime in here as well, especially sure. you being the, the U- uh, U.S. face, you know, kind of involved in this exchange of culture and business. Um, but I'll let you guys kind of explain it and go into it a little bit. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you how, <laughs> how, how it started and then um, hand off to Lauren for the, for the rest. So... I was the British Consul General. It was 2007. Uh, Nigel Lithgow, whom many of your listeners will know as the man who produced American Idol for, I think, 12 years, uh, he and I and my wife Sharon were sitting around talking about Brits in the entertainment business in L.A. In a good way, I suppose. In a good way. Okay. Yeah, we weren't gossiping. We were just saying, <laughs> isn't it amazing, you know, how uh, people like Nigel and Simon Fuller and Mark Burnett and so on have done uh, so much to transform television, um, and the Brits have been around in film and music for the longest time. Um, And then we started talking about the Brits being involved in many other things as well. Architecture, for example, the the guy who designed most of the buildings, it seems, downtown in the early part of the last century was a man called John Parkinson from Lancashire. There have been many other Brits involved in uh, architecture and design. Raymond Chandler, believe it or not, uh, iconic L.A. author, huh. was, was a Brit. David Hockney, of course, arguably the iconic uh, painter of L.A., right. was a Brit. So we started thinking, you know, the Brits are everywhere here, and not many people know it. I mean, not many people know the whole story. Right. I mean, a lot of, in Hollywood, a lot of people are aware that there are a lot of Brits in Hollywood, for example, but it's all very atomized. And we thought it would be cool to have uh, an annual program of events. Well, actually, originally, we thought it'd be cool to have a week to celebrate this. Um, that week occurred in 2007, and then we decided that we'd make it annual and we'd make it bigger because a week was not big enough. So it's still called Brit Week, but right. it's actually two weeks of events. And it celebrates... Because Brit Two Weeks doesn't, doesn't make... It uh, doesn't much. flow. It doesn't, yeah. uh, doesn't roll off and the tongue. For, no. Fortnite is <laughs> hey, not... Hey, come to Brit Two Weeks! Yeah, and Fortnite is not a word that's, <laughs> that's caught on Well, if you really completely. want to infuse the culture... Then. Yeah, but we'd start with confusion, so... <laughs> so that wouldn't be so good. Right. Um, but the, the, it's... It, it's a 501c3 with an educational mission, actually, and, and the, the message of, of that mission is the importance of the creative and innovative relationship between Britain and California. That's how it started. Nice. And how'd you get involved, Lauren? Sure. So I joined Brit Week about a year and a half, two years ago. Okay. And I was formerly the Vice Consul of Consumer Goods at the British Consulate in New York. And so, so that's a big business it, card. It's a very long business <laughs> card. And so I had become well aware of Brit Week because so many of the brands that I engaged with every day were talking about Brit Week and wanted to be involved with Brit Week or were involved with Brit Week. Um, I'd known Bob through my work at at UK Trade and Investment at the consulate okay. and that consular relationship. And so it's been fantastic to transition those relationships now to Brit Week and bring a lot of those brands on board uh, to the Brit Week family. That's pretty amazing. Um, you know, so what can people expect when, you know, when you go, you know, you go from one week to two weeks, you know, I know there's an art track, a design track, a business innovation track. There's all these different things happening. There's red carpet. There's, a, you know, it is a, like a, a pretty giant fanfare and there's a lot of people like when I look at the list of board members right the supporters who like you mentioned are are Brits in Los Angeles which again is just such a it sounds like such a tiny cluster but it's a big impact for Mm. an event and a a movement so just kind of walk us through like the infrastructure and some of the experiences that happen because you know I think there a it's like really good networking and things like that but then there's like it's a it's it looks really really fun right so sure Um, so Brit Week 
Brit Week's program every year is, is different. It's always fresh. It's always new. It's always exciting. We do have pillar events, signature events that are the mainstays of Brit Week and are, are really things that people look forward to every year. We kick off Brit Week with a very exciting red carpet launch, and we see a lot of those familiar faces, those stars and producers and, and those Brits. Like who, who are some of the people that, you, that we will see? Uh, well, we can't say exactly who or that we year, that we but, have um, seen. You've, you, we've had Helen Mirren, we've had Ben Kingsley, we've had a, a litany of really interesting. I've never heard of any of these people. <laughs> we get all the American Idol finalists have generally shown up. Yes, and that's that's, that's awesome. a really exciting thing because I think bringing the American Idol finalists right. it really shows that. UK California relationship, and uh, you know, as much as we're about celebrating yep. the UK, um, we often use the word creative fusion. Right. It's really about that important strategic relationship in all areas, whether it's film and television or business or art, uh, and what really happens when those two entities come together. So, um, so Brit Week is is a series, like I said, of signature events. We yeah. have a, a great Business Innovation Awards, which I know we'll talk about shortly, yeah. uh, that really highlights that business relationship between the UK and California, and is really celebrating innovation as much right. as you do here every day, all year round. Um, we sure do. And uh, we also have uh, really fantastic public-facing events. Last year was the first time that we've added a major public festival to the program on Santa Monica's Third Street Promenade, um, and we'll be doing that again. And it was a great way for us to bring Brit Week to a huge number of people on the promenade and have them engage with British music and literature and street art and um, all sorts of interesting British brands. And so that was really important to us as well. And then alongside that, we have a, a host of Brit Week programs, and I often get the question, where is Brit Week? Like it's a, a building. It, it's all <laughs> over the city. Um, we have events in Santa Monica. We have events in West Hollywood, in Hollywood, in downtown Los Angeles. Wow. Uh, we had a great book launch for John Parkinson by Stephen G. last year, um, and that happened downtown at City Hall, which is a John Parkinson building. Um, you know, we have really creative events at the Shangri-La Hotel. We have art gallery openings, music events, fashion. It really is a, it's a spread. And our hope is that we can reach a number of people geographically, also by interest, and really right. showcase how that British contribution is a thread that runs throughout many industries and many facets. Well, it's really of something life. you don't like. You know, it's something you don't realize. Like you don't realize the influence of the the cultural exchange that happens across the pond. What what I wanted to know is like. Why L.A.? Why not it's, you know, U.K., U.S. versus U.K.? Like, is L.A. the hub of the U.S. influence and, you know, the, the cultural exchange? Or it, why not Chicago or Detroit, where I'm from? I don't know if there's anything to do in Detroit. But. I, I think you could do it in numerous uh, American cities. Right. I mean, it's it started in L.A. because of the conversation that I described yeah, that yeah, I yeah. had with Nigel Lithgow. We have expanded beyond L.A. to uh, San Francisco and Orange County. And uh, as of last year, uh, we're now in Miami. So Miami has a Brit Week every March. And what's interesting, I think, that um, you know we're looking at L.A. and Miami is that a lot of people would ask exactly the question that you've just asked because they – Instinctively, people don't think of those. I think as the as the cities with the closest British relationship. Right. In fact, there are extremely close British relationships. I mentioned earlier the amazing historic relationship sure, sure. with LA and you know famous names around town. William Mulholland, who created the water system, was was from the UK. Um, Griffith Griffith, who left the money for the uh, observatory and left the land for the park, was from the UK. So it's an extraordinarily deep historic relationship. And I would have thought second to none in the US, but not a lot of people would know that. Um, Miami, I think, is probably a more recent thing, but it's amazing wow. how that uh, relationship is growing. That's great. So um, as one of the tracks that was really interesting to me was we, we, you were speaking of segues uh, was the the British innovation or the the business innovation awards. Um, how does that work? You know, I've seen some pretty amazing companies when I look at like the list of past winners from health and technology mm -hmm. to cinema to yeah. you know you name it. 
Um, you know, what are some of the criteria you look for? Is it, you know, is it all about the the business exchange? Is it about what they're doing on both, you know, on both sides of the water, if you will? Yeah. Um, just, yeah, kind of just walk us through a little bit. Of so that. we're in our fifth year now of doing the uh, the Brit Week Business Innovation Awards competition. And it's something that Brit Week does in conjunction with UK Trade and Investment, the agency, uh, British government agency that promotes trade and investment. Uh, so we're all about creativity and innovation. They're all about um, trade and investment. The criteria are actually fairly broad. What we're trying to do is to capture that extraordinary alchemy between uh, Californian and uh, British innovation. Britain is uh, a disproportionately innovative place uh, relative to its size in Europe and its size in the world. Um, whether you know you're looking at inventions over the years, Nobel right. prizes, uh, new companies, whatever, California is the same. California is disproportionately innovative compared with the rest of the United States and, and the rest of the world. So, <laughs> and a, a very interesting thing that I've observed, and I notice it um, now that I'm in the private sector, just as I did when I was a diplomat, is that British companies, as soon as they're onto a good thing, they fetch up in California. They want to come expand to California, right. uh, work with California, raise money in California, whatever it may be. California companies, as soon as they get going they, and they start thinking about abroad, it's usually the United Kingdom they want to go to right. first. Mm -hmm. So it does seem to be a very natural thing. So we, we decided to draw the criteria uh, for eligibility very broadly and just say any company that is working in both uh, California and the UK can apply. So we're, we're, we're celebrating the innovation right. in that business relationship. And what are some of the, like, the highlights that you've seen that, you know, you, either of you, like, you've been impressed by, like, wow, this winner did some amazing work or just anything that comes top of mind, like, this is exactly what we're talking about. Well, I'll tell you what's on top of my mind right now as you ask the question, uh, although that's probably grossly unfair when I look at all the, <laughs> all the winners and I should be mentioning all of them equally, but... Uh, on the top of my mind right now uh, are two companies. One is called Calhoun Vision, which is out of Caltech. Okay. Uh, now, that's a company that has uh, developed um, – they have a Nobel Prize winner there, uh, Professor Grubbs, who's developed his materials uh, chemist. And he's developed a lens which can be implanted uh, you know, after cataract surgery and then adjusted after it's been implanted. At the moment, when a – uh, conventionally, when a lens is implanted, you're then stuck with it, but your eye still changes a bit, so you have to wear glasses. Right. Um, now, that's actually licensed for sale already in the UK, but not yet by the FDA right. here. Uh, so that's that's quite interesting, but, you know, hugely exciting. Sorry, and, Robert. And could impact wear many, spectacles many for the people. Rest of <laughs> and, um, and the other one on top of my mind is a, is a great um, a company out of Belfast called Cinemagic, which uh, won a Philanthropy Innovation Award a couple of years back. And they have a program for kids, um, disadvantaged kids, if you like, you know, lower income group kids. And it helps them get into uh, the, the film industry. Is that Jill Samuels' is uh, Joan. Oh, oh Joan, jo Joan, sorry. Joan, yes. Uh, Joan That's Bernie right. Keatings is, yes. is, yeah, is, is the CEO of that. That's been going about 20 years. And what's interesting about that is they brought that program to L.A. Now, you might think, well, that's crazy, a bunch of people from Belfast coming to teach L.A. how to do something to do with cinema. But actually, you know, it, there are parts of L.A. where the kids might as well be 10,000 miles oh, away yeah. from Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And it's, so it's all about bridging that division between, you know, e economic disadvantage and, and realizable aspirations. Yeah. So that's a great program, which is quite close to me. Even, even with programs like that, I always look at the, the, the idea of just a fresh perspective, right? Uh, you know, I think people have gone knocking on doors and, you know, underserved neighborhoods yeah. to do programs like this. But I think sometimes when you just like even your accent, right, for a 13-year-old kid might make me perk up a little. My mom was a teacher for a long time. And uh, one of the things she used to always say is, like, when kids have uh, an instructor with a heavy accent, right, um, mm. they pay attention more because they're trying to understand you're saying what I you're have saying. a heavy accent? No, well, it's, it's sexy. Um, <laughs> that's why I took my jacket off. Really. No, but it, but it is kind of, it's that whole, like, I haven't seen this before, right? I haven't yeah. seen this person before, where a lot of times, you know, I've, I've done work with organizations where, yes, this is a person who looks like me, and technically we should be able to relate, but sometimes right. it's like that 
thing I've never seen before is the one thing that makes me pay more attention, especially when you're, you know, young, when you're Robert's age. <laughs> I'm speaking on you today. I'm Paige and I want Lawrence fight for where it's been. Oh, um, you know, last year, or I think it was 2012, we had a really interesting company called Rocket Fuel. And okay. oh, yeah. they've actually just gone public, I think it was September, October of last year. And they basically work on intelligence of um, advertising placements, I think if I'm saying this correctly, so that when you are um, online and and you're you're looking for things. They help for that algorithm to correctly place ads that make so sense. So the ones that are craw- crawling my Gmail to <laughs> looking at my legal issues. Say, need a lawyer? Yeah. Wait, wait a second. <laughs> um, and I just I'm so impressed. I mean, we recognized them in 2012, and we really do. Um, keep tabs in a positive way on the successes of our finalists and our winners. And um, we're really eager to continue to highlight their successes as companies and their growth as UK um, and California businesses as well. So I think that was a real highlight Mm. for for me. And we like to think that our winners then go on to very large IPOs or merger deals. Because of you guys. Because of us. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting because, you know, it it is a nomination process. Right. Um, you know, companies we we've opened for nominations in December, and a shameless plug that runs till March the seventh. So. March the seventh. Do you yes. want to do your echo, Robert? March the seventh. Yeah. <laughs> so we are really eager for companies that, as Bob said, are 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 working and and doing interesting things in in the UK and California, and that could be a number of, of ways. You know, some people are still fixated on the idea of having a physical business, but we talk about joint ventures and partnerships and customer bases that yeah. really contribute to those businesses, and it's always. We're always impressed um, with the breadth of companies that comes through. Yeah. Um, you know, interesting companies on the health side, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. our, our philanthropic and social impact category always brings really interesting, diverse companies to the table. Um, so I think I know your uh, podcast category winner. Oh, oh yes, yes. It's a, a new category this year. Um, you touched on something earlier, Bob, just about, you know, some of the and then I don't, I don't even want to call it a problem, but just like the the idea that certain things companies can do in the UK or in the US and vice versa. What are some of those hurdles, you know, and do you guys even address those in sort of the business innovation practice? Um, you know, for instance, with the lens, right? Do you help with these companies to get FDA approval or whatever you might need to have that lens readily available in the US, you know? That's that's not something that Brit Week would right. do. Right. No. Um, and I can't speak for UKTI, but um, they, you know, I I can tell you that, sure, sure. that they are a trade and investment agency w- whose role is to help U.S. companies get into the U.K. market and to help U.K. companies get into the U.S. market. So I, that would be a that sure. would be a question for them. We're we're more sort of celebratory and educational than oh, actually. Yeah. Well, I, the reason I asked you is just because of, like, your history and, like, your diplomatic history and yeah. sort of being a change maker, right? You know, yeah. I think I read in 2006 you brought Tony Blair over and signed the, you know, signed the, um, the, the a pact with, with, with the, the environment, environment agreement with the yes. governator, yeah. Yes. Um, uh, now, that caused a little fluttering in the dovecots <laughs> because I, I don't think that uh, there had been an international agreement signed by a state with a uh, – with with a with a sovereign country before, right, right. Um, so I think everybody was breaking precedent there. But you know, hell, it's the environment, it's the planet. That's so very true. Move aside. <laughs> what was that after party like with Tony Blair and Arnold Schwarzenegger? Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, good. I see it the memories. I see the memories going flashing for you. <laughs> no, so what, I mean, as, as far as like setting precedents like that, you know, I think that. For me, when I look at Brit Week, that's those are the kind of things, that, the kind of relationships I, that come to mind with me is like, you know, because there's a spirit of collaboration, you know, an unprecedented yeah. collaboration. Um, just, you know, even with that particular project, what were, you know, what were some of the things you had to go through in terms of, you know, what was there a long lead time to, to like make that happen? And, the environment agreement? Yes, exactly. I think it was about uh, two months. Oh, wow, really? It was... It was done uh, very quickly. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like I'm, I'm kind was, of blown away. No, it was it was done very quickly. Wow, and um, it helped that there was a deadline right. of a visit. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, and so it was a hot topic in both places at the time, and uh, there was a bill going through the Sacramento uh, legislature at, um, at the time. So it was topical and uh, a little controversial, but uh, I think in a good way. And then when uh, when Governor Schwarzenegger signed the bill into into law, uh, Tony Blair. This was a few weeks after the visit. Right. Tony Blair joined him by satellite. So, so it was awesome. a very interesting collaboration. Yeah. Well, congratulations to you for, well, for you. That, that thing. Um, when I look at your history, right, I see Hong Kong, I see Ireland, I see the U.S., I see Uganda, you know, just kind of like um, this breadth of international um, experience. And what I wanted to ask was just kind of like, you know, um, I don't know, just how are you primed for this kind of work, right? Like, is it... Were you? Is this something from your personal history? Something you picked up as a kid with just an interest in cultural curiosity, or you know, did it? Was it just kind of a natural career progression for you? No, I, d- I definitely had a curiosity about travel, and uh, and uh, as you say, cultural curiosity as a kid. Um, and uh, I was actually particularly interested in Africa originally before everything else. Uh, my family lived there briefly, and also uh, I studied African history at Oxford University as oh, wow. part of my history course. And I thought originally that's where my career would be, um, but it wasn't a particularly promising place to go in the early 70s. And then I read a book um, called Borrowed Time, Borrowed Place, which was about this bizarre situation whereby some idiot had signed a lease for Hong Kong in 1898, what? a 99-year lease, which was going to run out in 1997. Nobody knew what was going to happen. This was the 70s. Mao had just died. China was becoming potentially more interesting right. because Mao had, had died, and we didn't know where that was going to go. And nobody knew what was going to happen to Hong Kong. Uh, it was growing as an international business center. People were investing serious money there. But there was no assurance that just 20 years down the track there'd be any property rights or what the legal system would be. So I thought this was absolutely fascinating. And I said said to myself, I've got to be there. I don't care what capacity. I've got to be there. So I applied for a bunch of jobs that would take me to Hong Kong, literally. (laughs) Nice. And and then I got a job with the British Diplomatic Service, where there was no assurance that I would get to Hong Kong. But I persuaded them to uh, send me back to university to learn Chinese. And then uh, I did get to Hong Kong. And I became actually the Hong Kong uh, desk officer in the British Embassy in China. And then the, the talks got going at precisely that time. So for me, it was 18 years of more or less continuous engagement with that particular issue of the future right. of Hong Kong. That's great. And, and then so from Hong Kong, it grew because, you know, again, when I see the other countries that you've, that you've touched on, um, it, what was that? What was that path? Was it just a natural progression from Hong Kong to, into the other territories, or? Well, I, I was a member of the diplomatic service, so I had to occasionally go somewhere else. And after, because you, you, they don't just leave you in one sure. country for your entire career, even when you have a specialization. Um, after there was a break in the talks with the Chinese um, after the Tiananmen uh, massacre right. incident, as they like to call it over there. Um, and so I went to do something else, and I spent three years in New York at the United Nations. That was a particularly interesting time at the United Nations because the Soviet Union collapsed, the, uh, the Berlin Wall came down, and suddenly we were actually talking to the Russians. The Chinese were sort of looking out of the right. window at that time because they were a little embarrassed by what had happened to them, but the Russians were actually talking uh, to us, and we were able to do some quite good work until the Yugoslavia crisis came along and really um, pushed the UN beyond its um, capacity at that time, frankly. But sure. uh, a lot of people, I think, who are very down on the UN forget that there was a lot of great work done with conflicts that have been um, going on for 20, 30, 40 years. Right. And people finally realized that they had to come to an agreement. And the UN was able to be a sort of midwife for peace. Um, so it does that yeah. very effectively. So Ooh. I did that. And then um, after Hong Kong, uh, I was asked to go to Northern Ireland to do the policing part of the peace agreement there. And then after that, I came to Washington to work in the British Embassy and then on to Los Angeles. 
a lot of frequent flyer miles. Um, so when you know, one of the things I, I like to look at is the technology influence, right? You've, yeah. you've been you've been doing this from 1974 on. Um, and I think when you start to talk about the, some of the socio-political things that have occurred, yeah. you know, internationally, um, how do you? I mean, what's different than 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 now, right? With the influence of technology, because when I look at night it, and I see, day, well, it's night and day, it's unbelievable. So when I first became a diplomat in uh, 1977, making an international phone call was a big deal. I mean, there probably aren't many people who remember that. You had to. You had to reserve <laughs> a time to make an international phone call, and they cost a fortune. Um, travel, it was becoming cheaper. There were one or two uh, cut-price airlines. Most of them went bust pretty quickly. You remember People's Express and Laker and people like that. Yeah. Uh, by and large, it was still more expensive than it is now, and people didn't travel that much. I, I saw a statistic fairly recently that there were maybe 3,000 multinational companies back then which we know, no doubt thought was a huge number back then, but it would be probably 100,000 now. Um, so you, could, you, know, you didn't have email. Uh, diplomats corresponded entirely by cables, which were then, when they got to their destination, were printed out and copies were right. taken to all the offices that needed to see them. Uh, and um, you had carbon copies back then. Very few offices – at the, ver the very beginning of my time uh, as a diplomat, you didn't have the kind of photocopier that could immediately run off 100 right. copies of something or 200 copies of yeah. something. We still had carbon paper. That you know, moved on from that fairly quickly. But when you have that kind of uh, impediment to communication, as it now seems right. um, to us, um, you – you can see how diplomats sort of had a monopoly on foreign affairs back then. I mean, we, re we really were the people who did foreign affairs. Right. Now it's up for grabs. I mean, every CEO of an international company, which is practically every international every company, every company right? <laughs> um, they're all doing foreign affairs of, of a kind. They've all got their own right. foreign affairs uh, advisors. Um, uh, journalists are reporting immediately on everything. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea of instantaneous news really came about during the, the Gulf War. Well, that's the thing I look at, too, is just it's kind of like that climate of real-time yeah. events and transparency. Like, I, I feel like transparency yeah. is such uh, – that's shifted so much because right. the people have a voice. Right? I mean, look at yeah. what Egypt did. Was it the year before last, I think? Yeah. Um, so – as far as like an ability from a diplomatic standpoint to respond and do things, uh, you know, what has what has shifted for the, those roles? Well, I think that diplomats now have to think very imaginatively and innovatively uh, about what their role now is, because uh, they're not the only, they are not even the main uh, channel by which governments talk to each other much of the time. Um, you know, the president can pick up the phone and talk to an opposite number uh, across the world um, and their respective embassies could be scrambling for days to, call right. up with, to catch up with what was said. And this will happen, you know, every government is doing, I mean, agriculture ministers across Europe are in direct touch with each other. You know, it, it's every, every form of communication at every level of every government um, can happen without diplomats necessarily being involved. So a real question arises as to what their purpose is. Right. I happen to believe there is a purpose. I'm not saying this in a negative way. I'm saying that it's, some, it's a challenge to adapt. I happen to think that diplomats posted in somebody else's country are in a unique position to connect dots that, that you know, the agriculture minister might not see sure. or even the president might not see. Uh, and I think they have to work very hard to do that. Right. Um, they have to really know uh, the country they're in. Uh, they have to really know their own country's interests and potential interests in that country. They need to know the businesses that are operating or would like to operate in that country very well so that they can... Well, there's a lot more to on. know. Like, you know yeah. There, there's yeah. more information. There's more... Because yeah. of technology, people can do more things, yeah. right? Uh, more businesses pop up. So right. it's a lot more to sort of... We used to talk about connecting the dots. Yeah. It's a lot more to manage and shift It's around. more complex. And there's much less war and peace than there was then. I mean, diplomats used to do principally war and peace. And right. it was, you know, making sure that the Russians weren't, or the Soviets, whatever you want to call them, were not sort of gaining at, at, at our expense. So 
obviously, you know, you don't have to spend very long watching the news these days to see that there's still a lot of war and peace challenge out yeah. there. But for most embassies around the world, that's not the top of the agenda. Well, anymore. I was thinking about this, and I'll throw this out to the group as well. Just, you know, when I was listening to NPR yesterday, and they were talking, I've, there was a war somewhere, obviously. Um, thank you, NPR. Uh, but no, it was, you look at this idea of, new mediums for people to discover and receive information like if you look at when radio came in and people were able to learn more about the world and then when television came in they were also able to learn more about the world and you would think that over time a lot of the war and peace issues would kind of be quelled a little bit because of just more people being able to act on it because of the information and the value of the information Mm. that they have um but I also feel like there's this weird sort of desensitization after a period of time. Like, okay, you, I've heard enough, you know, and I think that happens. Like, you, we get bombarded from a social media standpoint to, you know, stuff on Facebook or, like, you're hearing about everything so much that we become even more desensitized to it. Um, is there any truth to what I just said? <laughs> or, uh, yes, I think so. <laughs> yes, I think there's also, I mean, there's a couple of rather interesting trends going on in, in, in the world that... Um, I think, you know, on the one hand, you have an increasingly connected world, which creates um, a lot more interest and opportunity for those of us who are part of that connected world. And at the same time, you have fragmentation because there are people who are not part of that. And it it could be whole countries or cities that are kind of left out of this beneficial connectivity that, that, um, that we're able to enjoy. But it's also people within our own country and our own city. And I think that's, uh, that's something that we need to pay more attention to. So I hope we don't become too desensitized to bad news because that, I mean, that, will, um, that will turn around and bite us in the butt. If it's we like when I see that Sally carefully. Fields commercial. Like I'm saying, <laughs> in the arm of an angel. Anybody want to back me up? <laughs> No, you're on your own. And he's just looking at. <laughs> All right, next time, guys. Um, no, so th- there's one thing I saw really interesting on your resume. Um, you're an advisor to the. There's a British basketball league. Oh well, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's that. That was really interesting. I'm like, I could go there and be the Michael Jordan of, of the UK. Well, at the moment, I, you probably could be. Yes, uh, if you hurry. Robert, let's go. I think we should start our own team. There. Now it's let's very interesting. It. Uh, Basketball, when I was a kid, so I'll reveal my age at this point. So I was in high school in the 60s in England. We did not play basketball in my school. Some people might have done in some schools, but it was not widely played. Now it is the – after soccer, it it is the second highest um, sport – second – how to put this? The sport with the most participation, the highest degree of participation up to the age of like 14 or 15 among boys. Girls play something called netball, which most of your listeners probably are not aware of. Netball. It's, netball. It's, there's, there's, your, there's our Google search for the day. Yeah, that's your Google search for the day. <laughs> I won't try to explain it because I don't understand it, but it's what girls do. <laughs> boys, boys play basketball. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, but there's no uh, pathway for many of them to a, to a professional career unless they choose to get themselves to a U.S. college, which is not a straightforward uh, thing for most kids growing up in in Britain, but there's clearly um, a wish to. There's an interest in basketball and a wish to get more involved. And a lot of people watch it on television, even though I think NBA games are shown at something like one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so it's not the easiest thing to do. Right. Um, basketball is quite healthy in terms of the standard of the sport in a number of European countries. As you know, you know Italy. Kobe played there. Um, Spain has got some great players. Yep. Um, number of other countries in Europe. I'm not sure how healthy the business of basketball is in those countries, but certainly there's a decent standard of play. So a group of British and American business people have come together to create a, uh, a, a basketball, a, a good quality professional basketball league in the UK. Um, hopefully catching a wave which is developing out of Europe and also within the UK itself. And uh, I can't scoop an announcement that we're going to be making soon, but we will have a major celebrity uh, coming on board very shortly. Who is it? Uh, (laughs) Nice try, Chris. You almost did it. I almost got you. (laughs) Can he really be asking this? Um, 
But you know, it's it's a very exciting prospect. Well, that's awesome. That's awesome. And I mean, I just never would have guessed, right? When I when I saw that, I go, that is, so you should have like the basketball team perform at Brit Week, or just have some players come out. And- I, I would love to find a way of connecting my two enterprises together. See? In a there you go. Mutually beneficial way. There's a yeah. reason you were here today. <laughs> Um, So as you probably know, I would hope you know, uh, the show is called Innovation Crush. Um, And in the spirit of that, I'm curious for both of you, what what sorts of innovations are you crushing on right now? Like what is something out there that you look at and you go, oh, my gosh, that's amazing or that's going to be amazing. Um, Something that just catches your eye, your, your, your spirit. Well, Don't worry about the silence. It's there's right. an interesting one. Well, I, I, if, if you hadn't previously asked me the uh, basketball question, I would, of course, have shamelessly plugged that. See? I wanna, I'm digging deeper. Um, know, this, is, this isn't quite a new innovation, but I'm still really impressed and amazed by the collaborations that continue to happen, particularly within lifestyle brands. We just saw Peter Pilotto do a line with Target, and right. I'm continually amazed at how those are executed, both from a design perspective and a communication perspective. Um, when they, you know, you, I go to Refinery29 all the time for these interesting lifestyle things, and they're always showcasing really unique collaborations. And I think Target is a great example of that, but there's a lot more that are still happening, and I love that, whether it's completely different industries or the high-low, you know, very high-end yeah. brands collaborating with more mass-market brands. Yep. Um, I always really like to see the the diversity of innovation along that side. And Peter Paletta is also British, so that helps. But, um, <laughs> It's uh, really great, and that's uh, you know to be honest, that's something that I I continue to to crush on a little bit. No, it's actually uh, you know I love though because it, it takes so much. You know, it sounds cool when they launch. You're like, oh, cool. You know, even today, I, I think I read um, the. The, the leaked secret that uh, Tesla and Apple are speaking to one another, right? And you go, that's They're a... dating. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> They've been spotted out at uh, a couple of nightclubs. Um, but it, it's it's really interesting, like, the effort... Because we look at innovation also as sort of not just the end result, right, but the process by which you achieve the end result. And so you have to innovate the business models and the communication and the, you know, the deal points and all those different kinds of things to make those relationships come to fruition so And I know this I, isn't a new one, but I still really like Uber. I mean, I love it. Every time I use it, I, I really enjoy that service. Yeah. And I, I know that they're pretty widespread. They're probably, um, but I think they really introduced, uh, and there was a couple of, of, of businesses, Sidecar and Lyft, that did it as well. But, yep. um, you know, I, I you don't really, want to ride in a pink mustache, so. I, I, I really like I mean, like, I like Lyft yeah. if you're listening. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I just, I really still think that service is great. I think mm-hmm. the way, I think that really showcases a model of how people want to book things, have the service that they want to receive, right. having an app, having that ability, how everything's tied in with technology. I can see my Uber driver stuck in traffic, not able to get to me in the right. amount of time. It's little things, but I mean, those are our little advancements that I think help everyone's lives a little bit. Well, I think that you also it touches on that whole idea of collaborative consumption, right? Where you know people are built like making decent sized livings, just signing up for services, TaskRabbit. Washio, like, you know, I, there was a guy who was on before um, who is a partner at Upfront Ventures. And um, he's such a big fan of collaborative consumption. He's, he said he was in a car with his Lyft driver and he's like, he makes 50 grand a year just by, and he can turn everything on or off whenever he wants to. Right. And, and uh, mm-hmm. so, in addition to just the ease of the app and the service part of it, is the service to, the employees, if you will, or the the entrepreneurial people in, in those in those yeah. fields. I think another very interesting space to watch right now is healthcare, digital solutions yeah. to healthcare, and uh, there is just so many companies now trying to do that, and obviously most of them will fail. And I wouldn't personally want to be the person trying to right. uh, trying to pick the winners there, but that is going to be absolutely transformative and so necessary because healthcare, in terms of the connectedness of the industry, is so far behind everything else. Right. Uh, and it will catch up very soon, I think. There are so many uh, contestants now. And I always wonder about that just from a, like even a legislative standpoint because I think mm. when you're messing with someone's body and the way it operates, it's a bit yeah. different than getting a ride you know, to Brit Week. You guys should do a relationship with Uber. Um, I can make that happen. I'll help you guys out. Uh, but no, it's, it is kind of like this, this idea of um, there's a longer lead time 
to to make some of the health things happen. And sometimes the technology moves faster than the you know the legal or the the administrative side of everything. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some well-intentioned legislation that is actually getting in the way now, right. um, like you know passing medical uh, information across state lines. Right. Uh, like patients not owning their own medical records. I mean, these these are things that really, yeah. really do need to be addressed because people do move across state lines. They get sick in other states. <laughs> I've gotten sick in a few states myself. <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> no, so uh, also in the vein of Innovation Crush, um, you guys breathe this conversation in. Uh, and um, I want you to complete a phrase for me. Bob, you get to go first on this one. Uh, innovation to me is? I think it's bringing people from different disciplines together. I think, I think that's where interesting things happen. I think it's, you know, when, like, uh, biologists and engineers meet and come right. up with a healthcare solution. Like when people from the entertainment industry and the aviation industry meet, which can pretty much only happen in L.A., right. you know, interesting things happen. You, you look at the Disney Imagineers, for example, and where they come from. I, I, think, it, I think it is where people from different disciplines come together and Perspectives. work together. Yeah, it's awesome. Lauren? Uh, innovation. <laughs> is to innovation me. to me is. You know, I think it's as much as about you know things that are new as, as things that are different. And you know, I think uh, uh, saying what Bob said, it's it's a lot of people come out with new products. People also look at existing products, services, and really reimagine how to do those things differently. And I think to me, innovation is when you can do that and you do it successfully, and it's. People catch on to it, and it's consumed. And um, so I think doing things both new and doing existing things really differently to the point that impact people's lives. We often say, you know, our Innovation Awards is about how Brits and Americans together have changed the way you live, work, and play. And I think innovation is about anything that changes the way you live, work, or play. I love that. I think I have to now, credit Bob for that. I think that was something Bob wrote that I just regurgitated onto here. That's what we're all about here, folks, is plagiarism. Uh, no, that was great. And um, Robert, what's innovation to you? You've never, you made me answer this one time and uh, it threw me off. So I'm going to throw you in a Blast. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I kind of agree with them. Um, and to me, innovations, a lot of it is like, I like kind of pairing things together. So right. whenever I see opportunities to kind of, make something work that might not have worked prior but makes sense together. Like things that flow organically but were kind of meant to be but no one ever thought to. Right. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. No, okay. It's like it's, collect, it's connecting those dots that you yeah. wouldn't normally yeah, yeah, yeah. connect. You it's know. like pornography. You know it when you see it. I, I, there it is. Uh, yes. There it is. <laughs> and I know it very well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry. Wait a second. No. Wrong show. Um, so where can we find out more about Brit Week? And you guys, are you on the interwebs? Um, cell phone numbers, all that good stuff. Oh, yeah. So um, we would love to have everyone involved with Brit Week. Uh, we can be found at BritWeek.org. Um, and that's also the place to go if you are an innovative company and you want to nominate yourselves. Is that, is that your March British influence? 7th? Innovative? Innovative. No, I'm just. Oh, um, I, what do you say? Do you say innovative or do you say innovative? I think it depends which way the winds blow. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I live in a bilingual family. I, 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 I do say tomato, though. Just, oh. That's why you're the liaison. You're, yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, so BritWeek.org is the best place to find infor- more information. And it's if there's for ticketed events, it's the place to buy tickets. We also, like I said, a lot of free events. And we'd love to see a lot of new faces there, including the, the three new faces around the table today. Right. And um, yeah, for any innovative companies uh, that are listening in today, we do encourage you to nominate yourself. It's a really simple form. Uh, we, we do it that way because we want you to focus on really just what makes you different, what you do and what makes you different. So, I like it. And it's a great dinner at the Four Seasons. Great event. Oh, that's even a better reason. To yeah, <laughs> you should have yeah. said that from the beginning. Yeah. And then, like, deep, deep down, we're really superficial, right? <laughs> exactly. I should, Free food? Yeah. I, I, oh, why did you say so? I should mention, too, that um, that event is presented by Virgin Atlantic this oh, nice. year. So we're really excited to be working with them. And we do think the Virgin family as a whole, but also Virgin Atlantic, are uh, representative of, of innovation as We've well. We've had Virgin Galactic on the yes, show. Yes, so very yeah, innovative. You know, so you can take everybody to space after the, the last Brit- day of Brit Week. Oh, yes. <laughs> so um, I always ask this question uh, before we wrap up. 
you know it. <laughs> uh, so, uh, what are you, your guys' uh, favorite quotes? If you guys have one. Especially the well-read man across from me. Yeah. Read a lot of books. Um, well, I gave you one earlier, which I really love, the, the Christopher Isherwood one, which is there's no point in explaining to people why L.A. is the only place to live. Either they get it or they don't. Another one, I mentioned Rainer Bannum earlier, the architectural historian who wrote uh, a book called um, uh, L.A., The Architecture of Four Ecologies, and a movie called um, Rainer Bannum Loves Los Angeles. And he said, um, I learned to drive so that I could read L.A. in the original. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So are we stuck? You were expecting something more literary. I know. No, I, I can see we that. never know of, what to look expect. Look of dismay on your face. Like, oh, it wasn't right. higher brow than that. Thank you, everybody. This has been another. No, just kidding. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> God, I don't know if I have a quote. Um, you know, we've been talking a lot about Shakespeare, so Shakespeare's on my mind. Uh, we're also celebrating, as part of Brit Week, 450 years of Shakespeare. Uh, he was born 450 years ago. Around April 23rd is, I think, the date that they've pinpointed as their best estimate. What do you get somebody for their 450th birthday? I don't know. <laughs> bottle of alcohol, I think, is always appropriate. A tribute. Uh, but we've always been, I always like to think that, you know, all the world's a stage and all the, all the, all, I can't, I'm not doing it correctly. What is it? All the world's a stage and. All the people, actors. Yes. Right, upon yes. us. Yeah. That's a paraphrase, but I always like that. <laughs> that was close enough. Yeah. I think Shakespeare just rolled over. No, was, <laughs> I know. Um, so it's interesting because we always, you know, Brit Week is is uh, a collaborative effort of a lot of really interesting brands and people and yeah. a, a lot of players that come to put it together. So it's interesting as we put together all of our events, um, large and small, and uh, bringing those players together. That's awesome. And That's Shakespeare awesome. was innovative. Oh, well, of course. I mean, I, I read in a book by Bill Bryson, I think it was, that Shakespeare invented 10% of the words that he used. Really? Yeah, well, that's the thing. It, it was almost his own language, right? It, yeah. They didn't know if it was slang or the dialect of the time yeah. or, you know. There's I, was, a... I was wondering why it was so hard to read when I was a kid. He was <laughs> he making up, up half the well, words. Well, a lot of it is stuck. I mean, it's not of... like Dr. Seuss style. <laughs> <you know? laughs> it's like, it's like excellent, for example, that we all use today. He invented did he? Yeah. Well, that's excellent. Amazing guy. Yeah. No, that is. <laughs> Where are we going with this? Um, no, but thank you guys for coming down. This has been really fun. I, yeah, I, I, I'm so glad I know a lot more about Brit Week and about you guys and and uh, and your efforts. I think it's I think it's really amazing. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm looking forward to to partying down with you on the, on the red carpet. Four seasons. <laughs> yeah, yes. free meal. It's a good it's a good party too. Brit Week has a lot of fun. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for this. Really enjoyed it. Thank Thank you. Thank you, everybody. This has been another episode of Innovation Crush. Innovation Crush. And we will talk to you next time. Bye. If you like listening to comedy, try watching it on the internet. The folks behind the Sideshow Network have launched a new YouTube channel called Wait For It. It's got interviews with comedians like Reggie Watts, Todd Glass, Liza Schleisinger, Schleisinger, I've been friends with her for 10 years, one of the funniest people out there, and I still have a hard time with the last name, Liza. Our very own Owen Benjamin, that's me, takes you on a musical journey down internet rabbit holes and much more. You don't have to wait any longer. Just go to youtube.com slash waitforitcomedy. There's no need to wait for it anymore because it's here and it's funny. And I love you. A few days ago, Brooke Tudine posted an inspirational quote on her wall that got 17 likes and three comments. Thumbs up, Brooke. Geico also wants to make a comment. In just 15 minutes, you could save hundreds of dollars on your car insurance by switching to Geico. And nothing says inspiration better than saving money. Well, except for those posters that say things like teamwork, excellence, and make it happen. Hashtag keep climbing. Hashtag savings. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.